Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Summit for Democracy, American Leadership or Photo Op. Please welcome our host, Dr. Ted Bromond, Senior Research Fellow in Anglo-American Relations at the Heritage Foundation. Good morning, everyone, both our audience that's present here live and our larger audience that's with us online. Welcome very much to the Heritage Foundation and to this Thatcher Center event on the Summit for Democracy. I'm honored to be hosting three distinguished speakers who will present their comments on the summit and then take questions. I think everyone here at the Heritage Foundation and many people beyond Heritage welcome the idea of cooperation between democracies. But as always, it's much more difficult to make these desirable ideas a reality in practice. Who qualifies as a democracy? Who should be invited and who should not be invited? What's the purpose of uh, a summit for democracy? What does democracy actually mean? Does it simply mean elections, which is certainly an indisputable part of being a democracy, or does it require a much wider commitment to a free and, and fair law administration? Does it require a commitment to genuine pluralism at home and a respect for wider opinions that inform the democratic process? What is the point of a summit for democracy is it sim simply to symbolize what all Americans will agree, that we support democracy, or is it to achieve some broader discernible aim in our foreign policy? To discuss these and many other questions, I'm delighted to be joined by three distinguished speakers. Speaking first, Elliot Abrams, Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor in the administration of President George W. Bush, and was Assistant Secretary of State in the Reagan administration. Speaking second, Dr. Victoria Coates, the Director of the Center for Security Policies Program on the Middle East and North Africa. Dr. Coates previously served as Deputy National Security Advisor for the Middle East and North Africa on the National Security Council staff, and is the Senior Policy Advisor to the Secretary of Energy in the Donald Trump administration. Speaking third, Professor Colin Dueck, professor in the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University and a non-resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Professor Dueck has published very widely. His most recent book was Age of Iron on Conservative Nationalism, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Elliot, please. Thank you all. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, you know, the, the title question is leadership or photo op, and that's a very good question to ask about the event, the summit. Um, but it's also a good question to ask about the administration's human rights policy since January 20th. They would have been better advised, I think, to try to organize this summit in the period between the election and the inauguration and then hold it very early, January. February, because then there'd be no record to um, compare it to. Um, the record is one of promises that are not met 
in the actual policy. Um, let's look for just a minute at some of the language. Uh, March 30th, <clears throat> Secretary of State Blinken said, quote, President Biden has committed to putting human rights back at the center of American foreign policy. And that's a commitment that I and the entire Department of State take very seriously. We will bring to bear all the tools of our diplomacy to defend human rights and hold accountable perpetrators of abuse. That putting back at the center is a theme we hear over and over again. Um, prior to that, in February, so this is really the beginning of his tenure, the Secretary of State said, President Biden is committed to a foreign policy that unites our democratic values with our diplomatic leadership and one that is centered on the defense of democracy and the protection of human rights. Uh, today, he said, this is February 24th, the administration took an important step in that direction by announcing the U.S. intent to seek election to a seat on the U.N. Human Rights Council. That would be starting now, actually, in January 22. So the rhetoric is we need to support human rights and democracy. Indeed, we're going to put it at the center of our foreign policy. And how is it that we're going to do that? We rejoin the UN Human Rights Council. It's um, QED is not the phrase that comes to mind um, in that kind of syllogism. Uh, it's a policy of rhetoric, then, rather than substance. The problem I have is, is partly that it's rhetoric, not substance, but also that the rhetoric tends to be directed at us, that is, at the United States. Um, in October, with respect to human rights, the president said, quote, silence is complicity. But then he explained himself. He pointed to actions by his administration to put human rights at the forefront of US foreign policy and said, quote, leading by example means taking action at home to renew and defend our own democracy, to advance equity and promote justice, to defend the sacred right to vote in free, fair, and secure elections. Leading by example, this continuing the quote, leading by example means not pretending that our history has been perfect, but demonstrating how strong nations speak honestly about the past and uphold the truth to strive to improve, close quote. So what is wrong with that? First of all, this, um, focus on the United States does nothing to help Tibetans or Uyghurs in China, to help the Russian people, to help the Chinese people. Um, this is the wrong focus. Um, if the global human rights struggle is reduced to, you know, passing partisan legislation dealing with um, voting, um, or passing partisan budget legislation, it's meaningless. And I would say one specific thing about the summit, I'm, I think we should pay close attention to President Biden's speech, because I am afraid that that's the kind of rhetoric we're going to get at the summit, rhetoric about uh, failures in the United States to reach perfection. So that's for a second. Well, it's hard to put human rights at the center of foreign policy, except ideologically, where I think it should be. Um, no government, no government is an NGO. NGOs have the job of doing one thing, 
the committee to protect journalists should be about protecting journalists, period. That's fine. They're not supposed to be balancing. But governments have to do that. You have security issues, military issues, financial issues, trade issues. It's inevitable. To pretend otherwise is, again, um, misleading and it's uh, empty rhetoric. Uh, and I'd give you an example. Let's take one example, Egypt. The policy of the Biden administration with respect to Egypt may be, depending on one's point of view, a sensible rail politique policy. It is not a policy guided by human rights. That may be okay, but what is not okay is claiming that the policy is always guided by human rights considerations. It's hypocrisy. Um, so I, I guess my answer to this question, leadership or photo op, is um, we may even have something worse, um, which is kind of empty rhetoric when it comes to the world, um, and lots of partisan, uh, really offensive rhetoric when it comes to the United States of America. And that is a combination that in this summit will not advance democracy or human rights anywhere in the world at all. Thanks. Thank you very much, Elliot. Uh, let's move down the panel to Victoria. Thank you, Ted and, and Elliot and Colin. It's great to be here with you as we start to sort of come out of our cocoon and <laughs> venture into in-person. Uh, and thank you for this this invitation. This is a topic, obviously, I've, I've pondered for, for a number of years, and, and uh, I think Elliot really put his finger on it. We're getting back to that kind of age-old conundrum that Jean Kirkpatrick uh, addressed in, in her seminal commentary essay, Dictatorships and Double Standards, in which she uh, addressed the Carter administration's prioritization of human rights over all other national security concerns uh, and the trouble that they got into in terms of U.S. national security interests uh, in that they thought any kind of revolutionary you know, freedom fighter was the natural friend of the United States. And unfortunately, we discovered a lot of those freedom fighters were, were nothing of the sort. And we're still, still dealing with the aftermath of some of those upheavals of the late 70s. And I, and I fear very much that what's happening here with the Democracy Summit is falling back into that same trap. Uh, as an art historian, that's something Ted didn't tell you, uh, <laughs> but it's true. I am generally in favor of photo ops, uh, and I'm also very much in favor of, of democracy. I mean, I wrote a book about it, uh, but one of the premises of that book about democracy, which is about works of art created by uh, a series of democracies from ancient Athens uh, up through the present day, uh, is not that it is inevitable that democracies create great art, but that it's remarkable they create anything at all. They tend to be fairly disorganized, internally conflicted. And what was a journey for me intellectually was learning about how these successive free societies had wanted to commemorate their achievements with everything from uh, the Parthenon to Picasso's Guernica. So that, that I think, is a, is a strong lesson uh, not to not to elevate democracy too high. It's a form of government, after all. It's not necessarily a force for good or ill. It's, it's all in the people who exercise it. And so that's what I would hope the Biden administration would think about, because you know, as we look at our great challenge today, which is China, obviously not a democratic actor, I think there was a, a false 
confidence after the fall of the Berlin Wall that China would inevitably liberalize and that if we engaged with them, particularly economically, the political would follow. And that turned out to be a fatal error. And I think what we missed in Tiananmen Square in uh, 1989 will historically be one of the, the great uh, missed opportunities of the United States. Uh, and you know, hopefully one we can recover from, but you know that 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 is that is not true. That uh, that democracy is inevitably going to occur. So we cannot say that all men yearn to be free, but we then have to put in the hard work. And that's where I fear uh, I would echo Elliot's fears about this summit. That there'll be a lot of rhetoric about that, but not a lot of the hard work that you have to do to uh, encourage and promote the growth of democracy through uh, civil institutions. So deeply concerned about China, obviously. Uh, another topic, uh, as somebody who works a lot on the Middle East, I wanted to touch on that I've actually learned very much about from Elliot is a, a country like Bahrain, which obviously is a kingdom. Uh, I just got back from there uh, two weeks ago. But it's also a kingdom that's working very hard to liberalize. And uh, they are rightly proud that they're going into another round of, of full parliamentary, parliamentary elections in fairly short order. And so failing to encourage that progress uh, on the grounds that they're a Gulf monarchy, uh, it, it, to me, again, misses an opportunity to both advance American interests and to support democracy. Another area that I'm concerned about in terms of, of the summit is what are they going to do about Venezuela? Hmm. Um, and I have heard that there are promises to invite the opposition government, the Guaido government. My understanding is that as of this morning, that invitation has not been issued. And while I'm very encouraged that they decided to invite Taiwan, I think that's highly appropriate. I think Venezuela is an area where, I mean, this costs them nothing. I mean, I don't know if they think they're somehow going to create some relationship with the Maduro government that would be in any way productive. Uh, but if they're laboring under that misconception, they should they should wake up pretty quickly and see that this is something they can do to convey legitimacy to the Guaido government to express robust U.S. support uh, for that government and for the people of Venezuela who've just been through you know their most recent round of complete sham elections. And you know, shine a bright light on that. Again, it costs you nothing. Uh, so that would be another area where I would, would hope that they uh, they might make some progress. Then, in closing, one thing I did want to point out because I think when when we've seen the protests break out in Iran over this weekend, be largely ignored by this administration. Uh, because of their interest in getting to a new nuclear deal in Vienna with the existing Iranian regime, uh, there, there is a kind of a narrative, which is generally peddled by autocrats, that some pe peoples are not capable of democracy. They don't want democracy, and that's usually followed by the canard that the people fear democracy because they fear instability. As I said, this is generally public, uh, peddled by the folks who are doing the oppressing, uh, and that we can see from Taiwan, you know, from the people of Iran who are willing to continue to stand up to uh, to this odious regime that has trampled on their freedoms for so long, that's not true. Uh, and one of the more hopeful things that, that I've been thinking a great deal about is if I had told you 75 years ago that three of our great democratic capitalist allies would be Israel, 
Germany and Japan, you would have told me I was barking mad. We had just fought a massive world war against two of those countries, and Israel had existed for about 15 seconds, and its prospects didn't look good. Uh, so, so that that progress, I think, is is certainly possible. And the fact that those are countries from Europe to the Middle East to Asia does not put ge geographic boundaries on democracy. So, I, my my message to the the summit would be, you know, that the United States has been this extraordinary beacon uh, for freedom and and democracy for over 200 years. And yes, we are developing, we are learning, we are growing. Uh, nothing is perfect at its inception, but wow, this is a whole lot better than pretty much everything that has ever been uh, tried, to, to paraphrase Churchill inelegantly there. But I think, and it, it, it's a Churchill's birthday today? It is Churchill's it birthday is today. Happy birthday, Winston. Um, <laughs> but it, I think that, you know, balancing the, the praise for the United States, and certainly they should all uh, show Ennis Cantor freedoms uh, taking the oath of citizenship yesterday uh, as, as a ringing endorsement of that, but then also admitting that this is going to take some hard work and it's going to take accepting that there's not a one-size-fits-all for democracy and encouraging folks on a different, uh, you know, in different levels of progress, you know, towards universal freedom is, is going to, as I say, take some, some pretty hard work. So I look forward to taking or dodging your questions, depending on the difficulty, <laughs> and I'll hand it over Thank you very much, Victoria. Uh, Colin, why don't you wrap it up and bring us home? Thank you. Uh, thanks, Ted. So, um, well, the concept of a summit for democracy is sort of hard to argue with in the abstract, right? It reminds me a little bit of what Gandhi is supposed to have said when he was asked what he thought of Western civilization. He said, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, summit for democracy, terrific. I mean, when we're all for democracy on this panel. Um, you know, the premise is they're going to bring together leaders from over 100 governments, I think, civil society, private sector, to set out this agenda. It's virtual, so if you haven't had enough Zoom meetings over the last year and a half, this will be another Zoom meeting. Um, the chance to voice concerns, so there'll be a lot of talk. Uh, they're going to acknowledge America's imperfections. The specific actions and commitments remain to be seen, but we're, we're told this will lead to or encourage a global democratic renewal. Well, well uh, I was happy to see Taiwan invited, as Victoria said. I was also happy to see Poland invited, which Biden has at times falsely lumped in with a what he considers to be a global totalitarian movement. Um, some of the other recipients, it's a little bit hard to explain. You know, Pakistan is on the list, but um, in any case, there's, I would say, three problems with this, with this concept. Um, the first one is, what exactly is this supposed to accomplish? I mean, what the nature of the format is such that it's hard to know what concretely is going to come out of it. There's a lot of good that the United States can do with its allies and its partners, as Victoria just said, on what she called the hard work of democracy promotion, right? But here we have something where I, I really have a question as to how is this meaningful? How is this actionable? What are the concrete specifics that are going to come out of this? So, and, you know, when, when Ted subtitled this, um, meaningful or photo op, I mean, I think we're looking at something that's probably going to be a photo op. And there is an opportunity cost, right? I mean, it takes up time and energy and resources. It seems like a certain amount of virtue signaling. I, I feel like the United States faces real enemies in the world. 
we have real adversaries, real competitors, and if we're spending time doing this, you know, that's time that would be better spent on other things. I'd like to see if, for example, build more submarines to deploy to the Taiwan Strait. That would be a good use of time. I don't know what this gab fest is supposed to accomplish, and I mean that seriously. I mean, it, it's, it's going to be virtual, and all kidding aside, is this the type of format, a virtual meeting of hundreds of NGOs, private sector leaders, public sector leaders, is this the kind of format that's likely to lead to meaningful progress on this subject? Even for those of us who want to see democracy promotion, I, I doubt it. So um, that's sort of point number one. Point number two, uh, and this, this dovetails with, with something Elliot said, I just question whether this can be at the heart the center of the Biden administration's foreign policy and, and whether it is at the heart of the administration's foreign policy. The way that candidate Biden spoke, if you remember very aggressively, was that the United States needs to ally with all liberal Democrats against all illiberal non-Democrats. And that was a great campaign slogan. It's not a governing position. It's a campaign position. As we're seeing in reality, it is not a position that, the, that this administration has been able to govern on. Egypt's a great example, right? In reality, after withering critiques of the previous administration, what the Biden team has, has cycled back to, for perfectly understandable reasons, is a working relationship with Egypt and a working relationship with Saudi Arabia. That's what you would expect. I think that's fine. What is insufferable is the kind of piety of claiming that there's this radical shift and that they are you know, the sum of all virtue and that now we're seeing this dramatic movement in a liberal democratic direction. It's just not true. So if we could either have a practical approach to these matters, that would be terrific, without the pretense that human rights are actually at the center of Biden's foreign policy. They can't be, and they aren't. Okay, so that's, that's point number two. Um, point number three is that I, I really am struck by how much the administration identifies, and Elliot pointed this out as well, democracy in the abstract with its own specific party political agenda. And this has become more and more true over the years. I think you find this on the left and center left. Um, if you flip open any issue of foreign affairs, which is to this day the leading, I would say the leading journal of foreign policy in the United States, you will find it jam-packed with articles that suggest that the way to renew our democracy is basically a left of center domestic political agenda, including on social and economic issues. It's, it is now a given on that side of the aisle. Right? And anything else, for example, if you get judicial rulings or electoral results or pieces of legislation that are conservative or center-right, I suppose that's undemocratic for reasons that are never fully specified. So it's a partisan agenda. Okay? I mean, that's, let's be honest. That's, they, are, they are connecting the notion of international democracy promotion with their own specific domestic partisan agenda. I mean, there were movements in the 19th century, early 20th century toward trying to build transnational connections on the left, the first international, the second international, the third, the fourth, the fifth, however many you want to count. This has been the language uh, with liberals on both sides of the Atlantic for several years now. It's, I mean, they seem to really believe this and mean it, that there is such a thing as a, a cluster of illiberals, whatever that means, and it can include everything from Vladimir Putin to the People's Republic of China to Salafi jihadists to democratically oriented conservatives. If you notice, one of these things is not like the other. But they're all lumped in with people who are not liberal. All right. So with this summit, we're being told that that, I guess, is the, is the concept, which is to promote their specific version 
of politics and policy. So I, I'd like a little honesty as to what, what is really happening. So, um, you know, I would consider myself skeptical for all these reasons. And I would have to answer, uh, that's probably less than my 10 minutes, uh, because I don't think there's much to it. I don't think there's much to it. I'm not saying that every single thing the administration's done is wrong. Actually, there's some things I like. I like it, for example, when they signed a submarine deal with Australia and um, Britain. That's real. That's something real. Let's do, let's see more of that, you know? Um, so if I had to answer Ted, I would have to say photo op. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. I'll, I'll just give uh, one example, which is, is quite concrete, that it's in my own area of work. Uh, I do quite a lot of work on Interpol abuse. Uh, and uh, late last week, uh, we had the meeting of the Interpol General Assembly, uh, which elected a new president of Interpol, a general from the United Arab Emirates, who is credibly accused of torture coming from a country that is notorious as a major Interpol abuser. And this individual won 70% of the votes in the General Assembly. Uh, by the math, a number of places that voted for this individual, voting in the General Assembly is not public, so we don't know, but according to the math, many of the people who voted for this individual must be attending the Summit for Democracy. Um, it costs you nothing to vote for the Czech candidate, who was a perfectly respectable police official of long standing. But instead, you vote for the human rights abuser from the UAE. Where is American leadership on this issue? We pay the single largest share of Interpol's budget. The democracies overwhelmingly control Interpol's budget. We essentially control the rules. And yet, we lost. Um, I would value serious action in this little area, uh, even though it is a relatively small one, much more than I would value rhetoric about a summit for democracy. Because Interpol actually does things, to sort of touch on Colin's point. Uh, I want to start off by asking all of the panelists uh, a more historically oriented question. Uh, it's, it seems like ages, but it was not in fact all that long ago that we had the Obama administration. And you recall that certainly in the first years of the Obama administration, and even in so many of its later years, the rhetoric was that the United States needed to reach out to reset relations with Russia, to reach out to the Castro regime in Cuba, to develop new connections to Iran. Of course, there is a specific nuclear deal at issue there, but it was a much larger agenda than that. I remember watching a debate in 2016 where President Obama told Governor Romney uh, that the idea of saying that Russia was an enemy of the United States was foolish Cold War thinking, and nothing could be more wrong than this. The left has moved a great way on foreign policy since the Obama administration, really up to and even slightly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, to now. Looking back over that time, how would you account for the left's move in foreign policy to saying that, from saying that we need to reach out to foreign dictators to saying that, no, no, American foreign policy has to be based on what we all agree with, uh, support and alliance for democracy? Well, <clears throat> I'll take a stab at it. Colin's the, um, the historian here. Um, part of it has got to be, I, I think, that it just didn't work. That is, 
um, there was significant outreach on the part of the, just take the case of Cuba, significant outreach to Cuba. Um, and it produced nothing. Uh, I mean, it produced some benefits for the Castro regime. But in terms of improvement for the people, nothing. Um, likewise, Russia. I think the, the, the error that was made was um, that when President Obama thought of Cuba, he thought of a kind of black box, a thing called Cuba, likewise Russia, likewise China, rather than thinking about the Cuban people. Mm. What do they need? What do they want? Uh, and of course, we start with their hatred of the regime. Uh, same thing in Iran. Um, so you're not supporting, if that's your policy, you're not supporting the Iranian people in their decades-long confrontation with the regime. Uh, you're not supporting dissidents in, in China. It just didn't, <clears throat> didn't work. It didn't um, produce anything. Whether there is a real change now, I think, remains to be seen in the sense that when well, there isn't, there isn't on Iran. I mean, we're back in Obama land 2015. Um, uh, whether there will be any change on uh, Russia, I think, remains to be seen. I would say that there is a general tightening in the West. It, it's um, in the last five years on China, the West meaning um, Europe as well as the United States, Japan, Australia, uh, just because of the egregiousness of Chinese behavior. Well, not surprisingly, I would I would agree with all of that, and I think uh, what I would add is is they seem to be getting themselves into a box where it's an either or, either you engage with all dictatorships or you shun Russia and China and have no dealings with them, and that's implausible. And you know, another anniversary that's coming up in in 2023 is will be the 40th anniversary of of Reagan's Evil Empire speech, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a very illustrative example of how you can you can have it both ways. You can, on the one hand, identify the Soviet Union as the evil empire, consign it to the ash heap of history, express solidarity with the Russian people. But that didn't mean Reagan refused to deal with the Soviets. Obviously, he met with the Soviets. He dealt with them. Uh, very strongly, uh, and didn't go to war with them. So this this is possible, but figuring out you know what what that balance is, uh, and not putting yourself into you know what Colin really identified as an, an untenable box in terms of taking campaign slogans and actually then governing. Uh, I think that's that's the real challenge here. Yeah, I mean. Um I'm not sure there has been as much of a shift yet. I mean, there's been a shift rhetorically, but there's plenty of ideological resources on the left for accommodating various dictatorships when it when it's uh, desired. I mean, the, uh, there's an argument for uh, reconnecting to Iran that's that's you know come up, and I'm, if, if the circumstances allowed for it, I, I imagine you'd see a cozier relationship with uh, possibly Cuba, um, you know, maybe even Russia. I mean, a lot of it, I think, is just a reaction to Trump or the idea of what Trump was. It was the idea that, okay, we, we know Trump is this, so therefore we'll be that, right? That seems to be a big, a big driver of it. And so uh, the Democratic Party became convinced by 2020 that this notion of we are for democracy versus authoritarianism was a very simple, clear, for a lot of people, a very appealing message. Um, although if you actually look at the Trump administration in detail, I don't have to tell anybody on this panel, there were plenty of withering human rights critiques of various <laughs> regimes around the world, including Venezuela, Iran, North Korea, you name it, right? Obviously, the president had his own MO, but um, 
you know, in some ways, a human rights critique of China was was amplified and, and uh, compared to previous administrations. So, um, and that you could say that of more than one country. So, I would say um, I'm not sure there is such a shift. I think I think that rhetorically there's a shift, but I think that if the Biden team or if liberals generally become convinced that that accommodation of a given uh, authoritarian regime makes sense from their point of view, they will probably cycle back to a position where they're perfectly comfortable with it. And what seemed dangerously authoritarian three or four years ago will now be described as prudent and wise accommodation. Mature. Of, yeah. yeah. Mature foreign, foreign policy. The grown-ups being in charge. Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, questions from the audience, uh, or indeed reactions from the panel to anything that other panelists have said. No, okay, in that case, let's take a question. Oh, yes, sorry, we do have a microphone coming around. Thank you very much. On rhetoric, you're using democracy, but shouldn't we be talking self-governance? Because the originalism is we're supposed to be allowed to self-govern in religion locally. So the Democrats wanted to be vote for a socialist government, secular, they can then relate to any world leaders if they're not under God, under the concept. Um, so it's complicated. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really interesting question. For those online who may not have heard, the question is, is um, if, I, if I may be permitted to paraphrase, um, does democracy mean more than just elections? Isn't there an underlying idea of self-government, of localism, the relationship of the state to religion, and a lot of other things? You know, it gets into, it's a very complicated issue. For example, monarchy. We don't believe in monarchy because we're Americans. Um, but, some, you know, there are monarchies in the world. And one could make an argument that many of the monarchies are far from the worst governments on the face of the earth. Um, and there are mixed cases. Uh, there are elected parliaments, for example, in Morocco, Jordan, Kuwait, that don't run the country, uh, but they're not just um, picture book parliaments. They have certain responsibilities. <clears throat> so, well, you know, it, it to me it's interesting. I, this is a sort of five-hour discussion, but <laughs> I would just say <clears throat> I like the word legitimacy. And uh, it's striking that after the Arab Spring, uh, none of the um, Arab uh, monarchies fell. Each case is different. But I would argue that one of the ingredients that produced that outcome was that they had a fairly decent degree of legitimacy that some of the fake republics did not have, republics that, I mean, Libya was a republic. Syria was a republic in theory. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, you could have a, <laughs> you can't actually have a summit of legitimate governments. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, just, yeah. it just doesn't sound right. But, yeah. but it, it's, it's a, uh, you know, we're Americans. So we actually do believe that, that um, people need to have a substantial role in the governing of their country. And, you know, my argument in the case of monarchy would be 
we see many monarchic models around the world um, that are compatible with complete democracy, Japan, let's say, Great Britain, um, Great Britain Norway, uh, and others that are not complete democracies but seem to work. Well, the the <clears throat> let's uh, let's let's let our panelists have a crack at the original question. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think, yeah, I I, I do think that's a, a critical question, and I I sort of touched on it in terms of not over lionizing democracy as a as a system of government. Um, and, you know, again, having gone historically through 10 free systems, they take very different manif make, uh, manifestations and can have different strengths and weaknesses. And, and I think, you know, it, it, if, you, if you just lionize elections, for example, you get something like the 2006 Hamas election. Uh, from the Palestinians, you know, in, in in trying to impose elections before you have sufficiently developed civic institutions, it can go off the rails quite severely. So I think that's a, a strong cautionary tale. Uh, but I think I think you're touching on what what's at the root of what I think all three of us is, are saying is, you know, sort of piously declaring that this summit of democracies is somehow going to become you know, Starfleet Academy or whatever and run the universe uh, is, is disingenuous. And, you know, certainly as, as folks who've worked a lot on the Middle East, I, I, I take your point. And, you know, as democracy, you know, legitimacy, freedom in the Middle East, you know, takes its somewhat torturous path, uh, you know, it, it's not going to look like Virginia, uh, for example, but what what could it look like uh, if we were supportive of particularly parliamentary monarchies uh, as they develop? I think I think we could have a lot of potential there. Yeah, I would just add one other theme on this interesting point about the connection between uh, religion, human rights, and democracy. Is uh, this administration in particular, and this is a trend over the years, seems to bundle into basic human rights um, again interpretations that are really controversial even inside the United States. And I'll give you an example. Um, we, know the law, we know that same-sex marriage is the law of the land in the U.S. It has been for several years now. That was actually not President Obama's position when he took over, but it became his position over time. And it also became an element in U.S. foreign policy under the Obama administration. I think there is a serious question as to whether the promotion of same-sex marriage overseas needs to be considered a core human rights issue for the United States. I mean, I would need to hear that case made persuasively. It doesn't seem to me that it, it should be or that it needs to be. And when we do it, by the way, there are practical problems because in a lot of countries around the world that are more conservative socially, um, you're, going to, you're going to find it's counterproductive. You may, have to, you may have to decide how you want to maintain your relations on important security and economic matters if that's a top priority, right? I don't actually think it should be, but that's an example of where the Biden administration has interpreted human rights and democracy in a very specific way that even within the U.S. is, is left of center. I would, I would sort of, uh, and uh, Elliot, you've, you've proposed a, a word that's useful, legitimate for assessing regimes. Uh, a word that used to be used in the United States is the idea of respectable. Uh, if you look at Washington's resignation as commander-in-chief of the Continental Congress, 
uh, he says that the United States then has an opportunity to become a respectable nation. And I've always really liked that phrase because it, it implies that you know, there may be greater or lesser degrees of respectability, uh, but it also implies that there are certain places out there that are fundamentally unrespectable, that are, are just sort of not worthy of American respect. And you could sort of unpack what Washington meant by respectability, but I think ultimately he meant something vaguely like the constitutional order um, and sort of participation in um, the international state system as it existed around 1790. Well, that rules out a lot of places, um, but it doesn't rule out necessarily what you might perhaps call the better monarchies. Um, you know, maybe they are respectable, even though I don't wish for such a system in the United States. Do you abide by the law of nations? Would be one question. Yeah. <clears throat> or, for example, do you support, tolerate uh, uh, piracy? Yeah. Um, then you get into the very interesting question about, um, and here we go back to the Treaty of Westphalia. Are nations black boxes? That is, can you be a respectable nation if you enslave your own population? Yeah. And of course, Washington's speaking at a time when we are a very weak um, country that has no ability to have influence um, on such questions. Um, and, you know, we've now well into the third century of trying to figure out, now that we have some power and influence, how much does that matter? And, you know, my, my view is that it, it, um, it matters a good deal. I just think that when we address this question of promotion of, of uh, human rights or democracy, which is an extremely delicate question, uh, that we do it with some uh, sense of, of realism um, and of diplomacy, because I think there are things we can do, and I think there's progress we can make. And you make, you gave um, an example of Interpol. In the Trump administration, we fought a big fight over the World Intellectual Property Organization to keep China, uh, China's candidate, from, from taking it over, and we won. And that was a huge diplomatic effort. Um, that, you know, okay, it's not directly human rights, but it has an impact. It certainly does. Uh, so I think you have to be, obviously, well, I'm saying you have to be sensible about this. Yeah. Comments from other panelists? No? Um, questions <clears throat> or questions from the audience? Uh, we're getting close to our allotted time here, so if there are any more questions, happy to take them. Let's let's let someone else uh, have a have a crack here. Um, oh, we have a virtual question. Thank you, Taya. One of our online participants asks, should the United States promote democracy internationally? Is it really an important ingredient for accomplishing our foreign policy goals? Well, that sort of cuts right to the heart of it, doesn't it? <laughs> um, thank you, online audience. Uh, let's, uh, maybe we should mix this up a little bit and ask Colin to take the first crack at this. Well, I mean, when it's phrased that way, you know, being American, the answer can only be yes. But the, the, the devil's in the details. What exactly do we have in mind? How exactly do we plan to do this in difficult parts of the world, like, like the, the Middle East? Um, you know, the founding was based on the premise in American foreign policy that you hope that the example of Republican self-government will spread, small r. That's the hope, right? But the founders were also willing to be extremely practical 
For example, they allied with the French monarchy, not a liberal democracy, in order to defeat the British. <laughs> um, that was practical, right? We're going to have to do the same thing. The United States has never won a single war, great power competition, international struggle without at least the neutrality or the active support of illiberal non-democrats. Go down the list. N never has. So, we're, you know, in a case like Vietnam, right, we're going to need to work with Vietnam to uh, counteract China. And by the way, the Biden team knows this. They may rhetorically say uh, democracy versus authoritarianism, but in practice, they're going to work with Vietnam, as they should. So the short answer is, of course we should promote democracy, but um, in, in practice, we're also going to have to make some hard choices in, a, in the real world, uh, which, which sometimes means choosing lesser evils in order to counteract the greater threat in any given moment. I would say right now that's the People's Republic of China. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, my answer would be, again, yes, uh, but it, it's not necessarily democracy at the tip of a spear. And it is, as, as I said before, it's a lot of hard work. It's building institutions. And, you know, while elections can be, you know, sort of the glamorous outcome of that in and of themselves, they're not going to do it. So, you know, being supportive of, you know, greater liberalization from autocratic governments can take a lot of different forms. And it's, it's not just leaping to an election. We're running out of time. So I will um, answer briefly by saying I agree. <laughs> it's always nice to end the panel on a nice note of agreement. Uh, thank you very much, everyone in the audience here and online for joining us here at the Heritage Foundation for this event. Thank you very much to our distinguished speakers. And we look forward to remaining engaged with these questions as the Summit for Democracy turns from potential to actual in a few days' time. Thank you very much. <laughs>